you know, people are always asking, where's the research to recommend this vitamin or that herb or this diet or that diet? Where, where's the research? And I don't think many know how difficult it is to run a research trial on natural products. Today's conversation is with Dr. Chris Diadamo, who is a epidemiologist and expert in synergistic effects of healthy lifestyle practices in human health and wellness. He received his PhD in epidemiology from the University of Maryland School of Medicine and is currently assistant professor with dual appointments in Center for Integrative Medicine and Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Maryland. Chris has served as a principal investigator on a wide variety of studies on nutrition and healthy lifestyle. He's written many papers on this subject. So we decided to dive deep into what goes into studying a natural product, how the difficulties of it, you know, there is no patent that one can get from a, a natural product and there's not a whole lot of money uh, for NIH to support it. What goes into it? We discuss that process and we discuss a paper he wrote on lycopene, he and his research fellows. My conversation with Dr. Chris Diadamo on the process of studying natural products. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention to help you improve and optimize your prostate health and how to live better with age. Chris, thanks so much for being on, brother. Really appreciate you being on. I know, you know, you're a father. Your your boy is about like one year old or so, perhaps, right? That's right. And I, you know, I know what it I know what that's like. So I appreciate you being on. You know, you're you're one of the few scientists that I know that has done incredible work in the in the world of natural medicine supplements. Not only work, but in research, really writing great papers and looking at the science of natural medicine, what we call functional medicine, what works, what doesn't. And a thank you for doing so. There's not too many of you. You know, you're able to do that at a prestigious uh, university, University of Maryland. Um, so, if you don't mind. Take us through that process, right? Because here I am, I'm looking at your work and other people's work then to learn how to apply that and implement that with patients. I'm in the trenches trying to see what works and what doesn't. So that combination is a, is a fine, is, is, is a beautiful marriage between scientists like yourself and practitioners. What is that process like in terms of Okay, you're going to study a supplement, right? Is it so? Take us like from the actually, maybe we can reverse engineer it. You're trying to see what outcome with a supplement, let's just say lycopene, because we're going to talk about lycopene and then reverse engineer it as to what does it take to create a study and, and then eventually write a paper that where the rest of us can implement. So the suggestions from that paper. Well, first, it's a it's a pleasure to be here, and the uh, respect is mutual. I really appreciate what what you've done uh, throughout your career, and uh, even some of the you know fatherhood advice you're providing me. I, you know, I'm going to tap into that more often than we go along. But yeah, and it is definitely challenging doing work in functional medicine, integrative medicine, natural products, and so on, for a variety of reasons. You know, if we want to take it even a step back, is you know getting this type of work funded is not easy. Yeah. So, you know, these are most of these things that we're talking about are not patentable products. 
And, you know, the, there's a National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health that most of us know about, but there's only a limited amount of studies that are funded. Let's take, you know, dietary supplements, for example. So, you know, that, that creates a, a challenge because you've got something that's not patentable that there could be copycats, you know, let's say the company invests in a trial, you know, others can sort of piggyback on the research and so on. So there's even, there's that, there's that aspect. Uh, yeah, there's no challenges yeah. with, uh, sorry to interrupt, Chris, those challenges exist yeah. with pharmaceutical drugs. Certainly not a patent scenario because they're patented, mm-hmm. but even the, the challenges and the costs with pharmaceutical drugs. So, and where people say, you know, well, you know, the study was published, but it was funded by, you know, a company, whether it's pharma or mm-hmm. a nutraceutical company. I said, listen, we won't have studies if it's not funded by some of these companies. It, in a perfect world, they'll all be funded by the government, but there's a small percentage of funds that go into research, particularly in natural s- substances. And if we don't, if, if companies don't fund it, then there are no studies. And I, I, I think I think of the integrity of the sciences that they will do the right thing, that the design and the methodology is the right thing, and then they'll and the conclusions are something that I can uh, th- that I can uh, implement. So yeah, no, it's is yeah. cost is a huge challenge in, in in the natural products business. Anyway, go ahead. That's. Great point, man. We're getting even further upstream. You know, you get to that stuff like how do you how do you as a clinician read a paper? Because the vast majority of research is actually funded. You know, this is in nutrition. You know, is funded by food companies or nutrition products, and this goes for a lot of other therapies, yep. pharmaceuticals, and so on. So there are some things you can look at. You know, we're going way upstream here, but this is actually pretty important. Is yeah, you look at who funded the study, but you look at you know was the study registered on clinicaltrials.gov. You know, that was an that was an effort that was put out there to sort of mitigate these concerns that pharma and others would, you know, run a lot of trials and then only publish the ones that had good results. So mm. look at and see, go back and see was this registered on clinicaltrials.gov? Were the outcomes that they specified, you know, were those specified a priori ahead of time? Uh, that's one way. You, c- you can also look at, you know, now there's been a call to have data released, you know, the trans- trans- transparency and uh, availability of raw data so that other researchers can go and look at that. So there are steps that are being uh, made to, I think, uh, restore trust and also to, you know, point out those who aren't doing things very well. But it, it, you do have to have a critical eye when it comes to even reading literature, period, you know, for these these types of issues. But if we look specifically at natural products, so let's say that you were able to get funding for the study, you know, then you need to look at, you know, this is a, if this is a clinical intervention, given the way the FDA has the Deshay regulations, Dietary Supplement Health Education Act, you have to look at what are called structure function outcomes. So study, so outcomes that are of the normal structure and function of the human body. So you actually can't look at disease mitigation claims. So, you know, product X or whatever it is, this nutrient, you know, improve symptoms of this disease or prevents this disease without having what's called an investigational new drug application. And that's so really even if you can, even if the study that you publish actually uh, shows that there is mitigation of a disease, the company cannot say that or promote that they, information. You may not be able to get it approved even. So again, this is like, oh, this is, sounds a little doom and gloomy, but there, but the good news is, is that there are, are, you know, I'd say, expansion in terms of how we look at a lot of this type of stuff. But what it goes to show you is that it's very difficult. You know, people talk about, well, there's not any research for this, or there's not enough research. There, you know, that 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 statement's being made in the void of understanding of it's not a level playing field and getting that evidence generated. So the cost is the cost. That applies to whether it's a pharmaceutical, a medical device, a supplement, whatever it might be. These these are costly 
studies are costly to do. But this is a kind of a uniquely challenge, you know, unique challenge to natural products and dietary supplements is this you can't look at the disease outcomes without having this IND. Now that may change. There's some movement to change this actually, because that was not the intention of Deshay. And there's some movement in, in modernization of Deshay that we'll we'll watch and see how that rolls out. So what you see a lot of times is like let's say you look at a bottle of product. It'll say something like generic, like supports heart health. So it could be fish oil that has lots of data that that can, you know, reduce triglycerides and, you know, cardiovascular outcomes and so on. But it'll, it can only say supports heart health or these more generic structure function. That's the structure function claims. But those are the ones that we're limited to study. So that's the challenge with it is that you, not only is it, is it hard to, to do, but you, you can't even study those types of things at, at present, you know, without having an IND. Now, sometimes if you've got a, a large NIH grant, you can get an IND. So basically you have to get, you know, animal data and a bunch of things like that to, to show that basically to use it as a drug, even though it can't be used as a drug. So that's, that's the, the first- For our audience, Chris, what's an IND? IND is so the FDA, it's an investigational new drug application. So D, D stands for drug. So it really shouldn't apply to dietary supplements, but it's still needed to get IRB approval. And an IRB is an institutional review board. So to do any human intervention, you know, you need to have an IRB, which is basically an ethics board that's at academic institutions like ours. And uh, it's really important because they, they make sure that the research is being done, the potential for benefit outweighs the potential for harm. So to protect patients, which is a, it's a good thing. There's also private IRBs that are out there that, that work with uh, companies and, and so on. Are but, private IRBs you know, more friendly to natural product investigations than ones associated with universities? I would say typically, mostly because I think they understand the rules a little bit better. You know, most academic institutions like ours, I would say ours is, is actually pretty good, probably because we've done a lot of these studies and they've learned kind of through our, our, our experiences with this. But typically the private IRBs are a little bit because I think they've done it more often. You know, I wish there were more nutrition, natural product research in academic institutions, but there just hasn't been as much. Uh, so they're a little bit less familiar with it. So yeah, typically the private IRBs are a little bit more familiar with it at least. Mm -hmm. And so then let's say we want to study product A, whatever the, the formula. The other thing is, you know, the scientific method, right? So this was created to find out the one pathway that one single ingredient can affect that pathway and lead to some sort of cure or help with some disease. Natural lifestyle, natural products by nature of many variables is not, there's multi, it's multimodal. And, and I say that unapologetically, if I want to study one substance and, 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 and do that, like I always say, you know, when people talk about red yeast rice versus a statin, like sure. take a statin, take a statin. I mean, it, there's a lot of research. <laughs> they're similar. It's pathways of how it works is very, they're very similar on one versus the other. We know the research. It's one single ingredient. So take a statin rather than just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's necessarily better or, or anything like that, or reduces the risk of myopathies or things like that. So, so what does it, what goes into, you have product A that is a, it's a formula. Let's just say it has four herbs in it. I'm just pulling these numbers out of the air. You want to see if it has any structure function effect. How, where do you start? You have an idea. And then where, where do you go from there? Uh, well, you know, I, I think you're, you're speaking of, let's even say we're talking about one herb. Interestingly, there's an entourage effect. You know, I think this is, you know, we, we know that there's uh, you know, we want to look at just the, you know, the curcumin 
concentration in turmeric or something. There's a lot of other things that are in that too, or, or green tea, you know, we look at the EGCG, but there's a lot of other things. So I think that is a, a bit of a challenge is that we have this sort of reductionist, what is the active? And the reality is, is that there's probably, well, there's definitely multiple actives, but let's say you wanted to look at it as something even more complicated, like a, a polyherbal formula. You know, you, you'll, you'll need to get this approved. You think about the different mechanisms of activity, how those might interact with one another. You, you, you will aim for synergy. And I think a lot of natural products, you know, for the better companies are designed with synergies in mind. Like, okay, we're going to have this because this acts on this pathway, this acts on that pathway. And collectively, you know, there might be some, some benefit there. Mm -hmm. You know, ideally you've got some preclinical data to see that, but if, but if you don't, at least you've got biological plausibility. So that's the way you would off, you would often, you often structure it. But the challenge is that, you know, maybe a little bit different and each, and this is true in pharmaceuticals too. You know, there was the, it was a stork paper in nature in 2015 that looked at, you know, the uh, number needed to treat for medications and the fact that, you know, for a typical approach, some patients are going to benefit, some are going to have no benefit and some may actually be harmed. And this is for FDA approved medications even. So this is where the personalization comes in, but because we all have, we all have different needs. That's right. You know, so if it's like uh, nutrients, you may have different baseline needs. For look, looking at herbs, you may have certain pathways that are causing your arthritis and other ones that aren't. So you're kind of going in a little bit, just hoping that you, you can capture broad effects, knowing that you may not be able to help everybody. I've seen it with our own data. Very rarely, it happens sometimes, does a study that's of sufficient size, does everybody benefit? You know, it just, there are going to be some people who, for whatever reason, don't benefit from that therapy. And it could be for some of these reasons that just talked about. Biochemical baselines, maybe. Yeah. Like the like we're going to talk totally. about in a second. Yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. And then even just other confounding factors that when you randomize, you hope you capture all those. That's the beauty of a randomized study is that all of these other confounding factors in someone's life, their exposures, you know, their, their other behaviors, their level of motivation, their interest in health and so on, all these kinds of things can be washed out when you randomize. When you don't randomize, you run into some of this, we call healthier sick user bias. But, but anyway, yeah, these are, these are things that to, to think about when you're, when you're reading study, did they, is the population correct? You know, did they, is this, is this a thoughtfully put forth population? Did they adjust for these confounding factors and so on? So it's a lot, lot to think about when you sit down to root, certainly to design the study, but even to read a study. Uh, so it starts with a hypothesis. Then you, let's just say human trial. Um, you get the, you get, um, you start recruiting. Man, I remember when I worked at Columbia, um, I learned really quickly that research is not what I want. Uh, research in terms of the clinical sure. trials is not what I wanted to do. I was involved in a, a select trial cutting toenails to send back to see the concentration of selenium. I was involved in um, Zyflamin trials, recruiting patients and, and making sure that they, you know, pomegranate juice, making sure that they're not taking the placebo that they're, and I was like, this is for the birds. I, I, I don't want to do this. I want to, I want those that are passionate about doing the research and are interested to do it. And I am the interpreter and an implementer. I, 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 so I really appreciate the work you do. You know, so let's say hypothesis approved by the RRB, everything's ready to go. Now you're recruiting patients. How do you go about right. recruiting patients other in a clinic? And, and how do you go about that? That's the, that's where the rubber hits the road is getting people to enroll, which is why you have to be thoughtful about that when a study is designed too. you know, how we've done studies where people have to take, you know, 14 size double zero capsules a day. It was a Chinese herbal formula that we did years ago. And you know, that's going to take, there's going to be a selection bias there because not many people are going to want to do that. Yeah. But an attrition, attrition is about 30%. 
Yeah, and and even higher depending how long you do it. So there's a real art to putting this together. Now this limits us in some ways because most studies aren't for very long periods of time. If you look at nutrition studies, you know maybe maybe a year in, in a very long one. So but but people you know they for their whole lives. How does it play out over that? We don't know a lot of times, but so I think that the recruiting is going to depend on a lot of factors like that. You know, we, it depends also on the population. I mean, I think there's younger folks now, I mean, obviously devices all the time. So I think, you know, that's a way to, you know, it's like Facebook ads and, and Google, these kinds of things is a, is a way that a lot of studies have gone recently, especially uh, post COVID and COVID through a wrench and the clinical research you know, enterprise because we, you know, had a hard time getting people to come in for things. And so there was a lot of remote studies that were done. I mean, there's still some, you know, you go to your health food store, you'll see some flyers sometimes for a study or at a gym or whatever it might be. So there's still some of the old, I would say the old school, like, you know, flyers and newspapers and that, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it sometimes it's out of clinical practice too. So I think a lot of it depends and, and the degree uh, depends on the research question. And sometimes it's, it's a strict protocol, you know, and that's where you need people that, you know, you know, that don't mind clipping the toenails to, to to get these kinds of things and don't mind saying, hey, this is what you have to do and making the calls to make sure that there's compliance. That's like called an efficacy trial. Then you get effectiveness trials that are more like, let's just see what happens when we roll this out in the real world. And they're the the criteria usually a little bit looser. But but yeah, so I'd say that recruiting varies widely depending upon how how the study's done. And with this sort of advent of studies that are done uh, remotely, it really changes things. Or even sometimes the products are delivered remotely. So you never actually see the patient, you know, and they, they, they provide their outcomes electronically. Yeah. And how do you incentivize the patient to stay on? Do you pay them? What are the incentives? And that varies from study. A lot of times they, so when always think about doing them, the incentives are a good way to get people to stay, to stay engaged. Now it can't be overly coercive. That's one of the things that IRBs look at is if they feel like, Hey, we're doing this, you know, we're, we're basically bribing people you know, to be in Yeah. We'll, study. we'll find somebody to take you out if you don't. If you don't stay right. on, you know, exactly. I, I'm connected. Yep. So make sure you stay yeah. in the trial. <laughs> so that, that would probably not pass uh, the, the Tony Soprano uh, enforcers are probably not going to pass an Airbnb uh, approval, but, but it also can't be uh, overly enticing from a financial perspective, but, but normally gift cards are, or, or sometimes products or services. If this is something that's done out of a clinician's office, it could be, you know, some type of you know product or service uh, related to that. We we like to give incentives that have something to do with health when we can. Uh, so we've done some studies with kids in Baltimore, and we actually gave it as, as incentives. We gave out crockpots and things like this. It was in nutrition studies, things that they could utilize to, especially dealing with some of the barriers that they face at home. You know that they could actually utilize some of this knowledge that we were teaching them, and then and then put it into practice. Yeah, it's like what, f what, fifteen pills a day for a crock pot? No, I'm not. I'm not doing it. <laughs> right, exactly. That's not fifteen pills for a crock. No, that's not a good one for you. You're not, not going to win that trade off. I don't think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's great, yeah. man. Look, yeah. there was a study that I I I know about. You know, I, I really like selenium as a mineral for many reasons, and mm -hmm. it's really some prostate cancer, many other things. There was a study out of Penn State where you know the guy said, look, it's, it was a thirty. Um, 30 or 40 subjects, right, um, ra randomized. He says, you know, that study for for a year was a million dollars. It was a million dollars. And there was no biopsy. So, because that's the other thing that brings up the cost, right, the diagnostic tools that you use. Uh, no biopsy. There was just, you know, blood work, biomarkers, uh, metabolites and things. A million dollars. 
does surprise me. And then, so think about that if you're a uh, manufacturer of natural products, that's not in your budget. And then someone could go and copy it. What's interesting is that there's a group called uh, Radical Science, which is doing the, you know, they really opened my eyes to how efficiently this stuff can be done um, online. So they basically will recruit online. They will get eligibility and consent online. They will send products uh, to the uh, patients. These are randomized studies. Um, and they will collect patient report outcomes. And that dramatically cuts down on the cost and time it takes to do to do studies. So I've been working with them and been impressed with this might be, you know, part of the new wave of research to make it within in the realm of what's feasible for companies and natural products and others, you know, to do research. So it's not going to necessarily have to be a million dollars, um, but a fraction of that. So it's it's just neat to see how things evolve. You're in this long enough how how things change. What's a good des- what's a good design as it relates to for the clinician, the practitioner, the reader to say, oh yeah, this is good. I'm gonna implement it. Here's why I ask, right? My understanding, right, and I'm not a scientist, but yeah, you know, I took scientific methods in medical school. Mm-hmm. One class. <laughs> so I know everything about it. <laughs> My understanding is that the 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 it, the the study that will give you the most information, you know, is typically right. So you want to get it high, you know, you want to get it well powered, meaning as many subjects as possible. Uh, hundred, two hundred is better. A thousand is better, more better, for as long as possible, so you can see outcomes in a randomized fashion. And then those results should be replicated somewhere else in some other institution showing a similar outcome. First of all, I am unfamiliar with any study, pharmaceutical or nutritional, that's done that thoroughness of of, of research. So, number one, is this more or less what, you know, scientists would say, yeah, this is, you can hold, you know, you can hang your hat on that because it's, you know, it's, it's valuable. And number two is like, Who's done this? You know, what company, what product has done this type of rigorousness where we say, oh, yeah, randomized, well-powered, studied in another institution, same results? Yeah. Well, you know, the British Medical Journal, which is one of the top medical journals, a number of years ago, they published a paper that said, you know, about a quarter of our medical practice today is genuinely evidence-based when it comes to that standard of evidence. Like, what you just described would be wonderful. You know, but we just we don't have that for many therapies, natural or otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I think we 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 just need to be aware. Sometimes there's a double st- there's a false dichotomy that everything we, we do on you know conventional medicine has has that which you just described, and everything that's done in integrated functional medicine doesn't. That's completely untrue. So we need more evidence, period, for things. And there's a really been interesting. So a lot of us have seen the evidence based pyramid. You know, at the bottom, you have things like ecologic studies and, you know, case reports. You know, you go up the the the, the, the pyramid, cross-sectional studies, case control cohort, randomized control trial, and the meta-analysis. And that's what we taught for a long time. And and all things being equal, that's probably true. But there was a really interesting paper, and I, I can put it to you for the show notes. I can't remember it offhand, that said that that evidence is actually, that pyramid would, would be kind of morphing into another, because a good cohort study might be better than a, a poorly designed, randomized controlled trial. And a meta-analysis, if it's a meta-analysis of bad studies, that's garbage in, garbage out. So a lot of that, you know, we just, we need to look at it on, on an individual study by yeah. basis. I'll send that to you. It, it is interesting. And, and it's, it's absolutely true because I think we've dismissed things. You know, a good case report can be good evidence. You know, we've had the care guidelines, which I think people in our field 
you know, are, are, are using to do care reports that David Riley and these other leaders in evidence-based medicine put forth, a good case report can give good information. So ideally, we would randomize, as, as you were mentioning, as I mentioned earlier, to account for the confounders that, that differ between groups. Ideally, it would be really big. Ideally, it would be a long-term study, but just there's limited research dollars, period, to do these things. So, you know, and then there's others. There's, like you mentioned, being, you know, a, a clinician and a communicator. I am really interested in practice-based research. I think that is very real-world relevant. You know, what happens in a practice? Because in any study, let's say it's a nutritional study, a lot of those are done in metabolic wards. Last time I checked, you know, I don't have anybody, everybody making my meals for me constantly, and I have nothing to do but stay in this ward and eat. You got work, you got life, you got things to do. So, in other words, you some, have in, in in a study, you're trying to limit variables in real life. In you, all the variables are included. You cannot exclude variables exactly. in real life. Yeah, exactly. So that's the generalizability that comes in. This is where you know you may have heard about this efficacy. So efficacy will just think like your metabolic ward. You go there, you live, everything's delivered to you. You know, there's like bed rest studies that gives us a very good understanding that under ideal conditions, what does this intervention look like? But then effectiveness is like, well, how does this work in the real world? So you're not going to be at a metabolic ward. You're going to be out. You may not even have the meals delivered. If we talk about the lycopene study. We deliver the meals for that because we had a very specific research question there. But if it's like to see, well, how does you know, a paleo diet versus a plant-based or carnivore diet look like, it may actually be better just to teach people about these diets and then see how can they actually implement it versus giving them all the food because that's not the real world. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. You, you, yeah. You, you, if, by the way, I learned that, Chris, I've, I've been in practice for about 20 years now. And I think for most, about half of it, you know, the first half, like everything, I was like, I was getting some results. I was like, people are not doing what they're supposed to do. You know, they just don't have the willpower. You know, it's just not people. Are people not disciplined? Took me a while to figure out. It's like, you know, it's almost like you're in a relationship. It's like it's not you, it's me, <laughs> right? You trying to break up? No, it's not you, it's me. I had to, yeah. I had to look in the mirror. Say, it's not them, it's you, it's me, right? Yeah. Unrealistic, not understanding their day to day to to say, you know, just here's the diet, you know, and if you don't do it, you don't have the discipline. No, I need to understand their day to day, their philosophy around food you know, how they interact with their relationship with food yeah. before I say this or that, and then I can bring it together. So for the last 10, 15 years, actually, people have been way more compliant because of that. I've tried to tailor it to more to who they are and how they function in their day-to-day -day life. So yeah, that's a very interesting point. You know, Chris, I do look at observational studies. So here's how I look at it. And you, please correct me here because I want to get it right. Not, not I don't want to be right. I want to get it right. Prospective studies. And a lot of people in our field poo-poo these studies. Like, well, what is the, we cannot really do anything with that. I beg to differ. I think it gives us guidelines. I think that, you know, particularly if it's well-powered, you know, these, some of these studies have like 500,000 people that they're following within a period of time. I know questionnaires are a problem because if you send questionnaires every two years, you know, I don't even remember what I ate yesterday, nonetheless, what I ate a year ago, right? But this 500,000 people, right? So, yeah, it's not perfect, but are they all wrong? So it gives you some kind of guidance as to what what I should do clinically. So correct me if I'm wrong. Let me know if there's a better way of looking at an observational perspective studies. And thirdly, Mendelian studies and how do I, first of all, describe it for the audience and how do I interpret that information? Sorry, is that is a loaded question? 
No, no, definitely. So I think the there's definitely a place for observational studies. I mean, we didn't do randomized control trials of cigarette smoking, for example, right? I mean, you have to, those are certain things you can't uh, randomize and you can't do an intervention on because there's a, a presumption that it may be dangerous, a hypothesis that it's dangerous. So there's a place for observational studies. Now, they they tend to, I mentioned this a little earlier, They they uh, there are things you need to think about with this because I think in nutritional epidemiology, which is what my training is, I think we've been led astray in a few key areas. And the big thing I think with this is, that, so you'll see the studies that will adjust for things like, like smoking, age, BMI, you know, race, SES, some of these factors that have an, an influence on, on health, you know, but what can be tough are what we call the healthy and sick user bias. Mm -hmm. So especially in nutritional epi studies, if something is sort of understood to be healthy and someone is doing or not doing that, that, there's a lot of other things that they're probably doing or not doing that we can't adjust for. So things like sleep, stress management, you know, just a general positive outlook on life or a general motivation, a drive. When's the last time you saw a study adjust for drive or someone's like desire to be better, these kinds of things, or to have the best life? There are things that you can't really quantify or capture to then subsequently adjust for. And then you sort of have the, 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 like the entourage effect of food too, for example. So let's take a look at, at let's say someone goes to McDonald's or Five Guys and gets a Big Mac extra value meal. You could, if you didn't adjust for the components, you could say, is it the red meat that's the problem? Is it the fact that it's processed red meat? Is it the, the refined carbs in the bun? Is it high fructose corn syrup? Is it a hydrogen oil? Is it the trans fats in the oils? Right. Is it, uh, you know, inorganic, I don't know, tomatoes? She's like all that kind of stuff. Preservatives, yeah. I mean, or is it the fact that it's a, a diet, an healthy dietary pattern? So I think we've been, we've clearly been led astray with dietary fat. You know, dietary fat is not a bad thing in and of itself. Clear, I think we all understand that now. But if we went back thirty years ago, you know, that was the the prevailing wisdom was low fat diets. I would argue the same thing for red meat. I think that has been falsely vilified yeah. in the absence of understanding that there are different kinds of red meat. Are we talking processed? Unprocessed? Are we talking grass-fed or not? You know, it, and it's beyond it meat and, and possible or not, uh, they're not part. Of, yeah. <laughs> they're not part no, of it. No, no. It's like not at all. I, I, I've, I've been vocal on social media and with my audience. It's like, look, yeah. if you're gonna, if you, if you want to have meat, have meat. If you're trying to avoid eating meat, don't have meat. But don't have the fake stuff, which is likely worse yep. than the actual thing that you're trying to avoid in the first place. So in fact, we could just published a paper called Beyond Plants about ultra-processed foods. This is just published a few weeks ago. Oh, I'm going to look with, with some co-authors. Yeah, so it's basically was gets into some of these facts. I mean, th those products are, again, having one occasionally, fine. You know, that that we don't let no perfect be good, but they're they're worse for health and probably worse for the health of the planet as well. That's yeah, the part where exactly. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of nuances there. We won't get too much into that, but I think that the link really is ultra processed foods. And I think we're seeing more and more studies that are looking at that way. So I think the, the, the studies that you're talking about, the observational studies, you know, bigger sample size, great, you know, but they do need to make these adjustments. You could have 10 million participants, but they don't adjust if they're just looking at, let's just take red meat again, red meat, but also not looking at refined carbohydrates and hydrogenated oils and you know, these kinds of things, then what they're doing is um, throwing, you know, they're basically lumping things together that shouldn't be, you know, and, and pointing the causal finger at something that's yeah. more re reflective of an ultra processed food dietary pattern. So that, that would be the way. So very useful, just need to be, to be looked at critically. Uh, uh, thank you for that, by the way, that's an excellent, excellent point. And um, 
I know I struggle with it, um, but there's you know you have you, you have common sense. <laughs> common sense. I mean, yeah. common sense doesn't come from anywhere. It comes from like some sort of basic knowledge and just experience. Yeah. Common sense. Mm-hmm. Look at it. Look at the preponderance of research, not just one paper that says a conclusion. Yeah. That's sort of yeah. my approach, and I'm definitely on the same page with you with that. With that. Mendelian studies. How valuable are they? And what do they, first of all, what do they do? And how valuable are they for practitioners? Be useful. So I, we've done some of these studies, and I, I will talk about the ones we did with lycopene. We did some with a number of carotenoids, actually, but lycopene of, of particular relevance to men's health. You know, they. I can tell you how we how we did ours, and there's all different kinds of applications of it. But basically, you maybe I'll just talk about ours, and then this will be like a living example of what they're like. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So we we were interested to see how do different micronutrient concentrations on the same diet come to be? Why is it that you eat a tomato and I eat a tomato? And let's even say you eat a tomato, I eat a tomato, we have the same amount of fat because it's fat soluble. Yeah. Why do we have different levels of lycopene? So our hypothesis was that there would be some type of genetic influence on this. And we did a study of old order Amish in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, who have kind of a closed knit society, which helps from both a genetic standpoint and in terms of their exposures, all these other, they're relatively homogenous in terms of like their lifestyles and so on. So that was helpful. And what we did was we, we did a standardized diet. We delivered it to their home. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, representative all the way, but what we did do is we actually went to their homes and saw what they were eating. And so we tried to make it, it's going for this compliance thing. As you do, you meet people where they are, whether it's culturally or what they like and that kind of stuff as much as you can. And then we, we collected blood and did a GWAS, a genome wide association study and looked at, well, what are, what are their predictors? And that's kind of like a you go in agnostic, you're like, we're going to see what associations there are with between these millions of SNPs, which are single nucleotide polymorphisms, basically just a measure of, of genetic variation, and their concentrations of lycopene in their blood. And we found some that, again, this is this is pretty well isolated. This is that, that efficacy side. Give them the diet, you know, you know they got similar exposures, and how, when they got the same diet, how does that, how do we, how does that influence, how do the genetics influence that? And we found that there were a couple of genes that were, you know, pretty strongly associated with lycopene levels, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it has certainly has some, some impact on health, but maybe specifically prostate health. F- fabulous. And uh, so I know that when you start talking about genes as a combination of all kinds of letters, com- you know, in a row and numbers and things, it just gets complicated just by the nomenclature, but is there anything that we can derive from it? So these SNPs are associated with higher absorption versus these SNPs that are not? What, 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 what is the outcome? What's the takeaway there? The ones that we found, there's one called SET-D7. So I think the ones that are in common to recognition now, you know, things like the MTHFR variants, there's actually a number of those. We all, most often think of the C677T, but there's other ones. You know, I may think of COMT and a few of those, but BCMO1 for other carotenoids. But SET-7 was the one that we saw. Now, what's interesting is that it was, we also, when you're, if you're reading these, these types of Mendelian randomization studies and GWAS, you, you look at the p-value, of course, and you're going to say, wow, that's really low. Typically a p-value to be meaningful in a, in a normal like clinical trial would be less than 0.05. In a GWAS, it's less than 10 to the negative eighth because there are millions of SNPs. So talk about a lot of chances, random uh, associations. So we saw that that set seven was associated, but it did not control for much of the variance or did not account for much of the variance. It's like 10%. So it's meaningful, you know, but same thing. We did another uh, paper with alpha carotene 
which has been related with other cancers. And same same thing. That was there's different genes for that one, but same kind of thing. So it, it, it genetics seems to have an impact, you know, for certain. This is this side's called nutrigenetics. Nutrigenetics is the impact that our genes have on our response to nutritional components. Nutrigenomics is the flip of that coin. It's the impact that food has on our gene expression. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah, I think I think that side of things actually there's there's more promise though nutrigenetics there's there's some interesting findings there too. Again, most perhaps most notably the MTHFR variants. So very nice. I will talk later on uh, on MTH MTHFR. I don't know. I saw a shirt that says, you know, are you an MTHFR? You know, like <laughs> oh, I'm a bad MTHFR. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Let's see. So with lycopene, let me tell you my views. Obviously, you, as you know, I, I I stay around the prostate space for a while, and pro- prostate cancer is sort of where I live. In my formulations and, and supplements, I don't – it's not in it because, hey, just so many th- things you can add into a formula, and I'm trying to hit as many pathways as possible. And – I think that I'm careful with too much extraction and standardization from nature because I think that becomes more of a drug, though not technically or not as a you know in, you know not the way the FDA would view it, but it's still a natural product. But in terms of technically and scientifically and biochemically, the more you extract, the more it becomes drug-like. Yeah, and then now the effects are different in the body, which includes this is why you know pharmaceutical drugs have side effects. You know, so if you take willow bark for a headache, is a whole different experience than taking aspirin for a headache. Yeah, right. Sure, the aspirin may actually work faster because the salicylic acid is extracted and is concentrated, but there's some sort of trade-off there that may not be. There, when you have willow bark with all these other ingredients as a push-pull component, that's how I see lycopene. So, to me, by the way, I know I, for example, I, I prescribe curcumin all the time, and some it's the same idea. You know, it's turmeric and then curcumin. My uh, colleague uh, Eric Garnell would say, "No, well, tum- you know, take turmeric." So there you go. I'm, I'm sort of contradicting myself with what I do, but I said, "Well, lycopene, you know, you, you just can't fit everything into a pill." So I recommend. Look, this is. First of all, it needs to be fat soluble, you know, tomato sauce, and we kind of have all kinds of unique recipes. What? How is your approach? I, and I know you're a scientist, but I think you you practice a natural lifestyle to whatever that means to you. What 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 would be? It's a practical approach to utilization of lycopene. What are your thoughts on what I just said? And you know, food versus in in pill form. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you make great points. We don't get uh, those highly extracted versions in nature. You know, now I I don't think it's inconsistent what you said because it depends on why you're using it. Mm-hmm. To to take to cook with turmeric is a great thing for general health promotion. If you are dealing with arthritis pain, cooking with turmeric is not going to be sufficient enough to help address typically, you know, your arthritis pain and you would probably want to take curcumin, yeah. you know, and that so it, it and you're basically using it like a drug. Now it's a drug that's probably safer you know, a lot of ways and a little bit broader spectrum. But yeah, and I'd say the same with lycopene. If your your goal is, you know, basically just general health promotion or, you know, you want to get the antioxidant effects that it has 
It has some interesting effects on lipids. We I'll talk about it in a moment, but I'd say, yeah, eat tomatoes, watermelons, great this time of year, especially. The watermelon's a pretty good source of lycopene too. But it has a high glycemic index. I'm, I'm, it does. I'm just, I'm just kind of, I'm, yeah. I'm just kind of yeah. tongue in cheek because that's what I dealt with. That's like eat watermelon. Uh, yeah. But it has, they read somewhere, but isn't it high in sugar? High glycemic index. It's like, yeah. It's a low glycemic load. So how it impacts right. your body's different. So, and there's like sure. in there and it's refreshing and just enjoy the watermelon. What happened? Yeah. Chris, one of the things that drives me absolutely insane is these zealots, these diet zealots, man. Look, by the way, let me just say that I probably was one of them for a while because I just didn't know better. And, you know, this is why I always say I can't be a politician because I'm willing to say, guys, I had it wrong. I'm sorry. I yeah. had it wrong. Like that qualifies you, I think. That's it. I'm done. I would be done as a politician. Right. So right. I read certain, you know, I'll give you an example. By the way, I used to say no watermelon because it's high glycemic. And the was a ridiculous thing I've ever said. There's probably others. The other thing was, you know, soy. Soy is bad. Demonizing soy. Soy is bad. Soy, you know, I read the book book on soy, how bad it is, is estrogenic. Then I took a step back, you know, years later. And I said, let me take a, take a look at the research, including a review paper you wrote, my friend, Journal of Nutrients, I want to say 2014 or so. Look at all the research. So, well, why, why demonize soy? Well, phytic acid, you cannot absorb. Well, it is not that simple if you soak it. There's many ways of reducing the phytic acid. And there might be actually some benefit in soy consumption, not only to Asians, but to Caucasian and non-Asians, despite the microbiota in their gut and things like that that play a role in uh, metabolites and everything. So I'm like, yes. first of all, I, I just changed my tune. That why why is so bad? The paleo people, oats are oats are bad. Phytic acid, don't eat oatmeal. Meanwhile, their research systemic reviews are show benefits of eating oatmeal. The plant based with the meats, meats are bad. So all these, is, it's like, so what it does is provokes more confusion and people that are less healthy because they're like, you know what the heck with it? I'm going to keep doing, whether the vegan having a horrible diet and because they're protein deficient and nutrient deficient or the person just say, you know what, I'm going to keep eating my burgers. So going back to watermelon and things like that, I'm kind of making a long story to make a point that I think people need to step back like I have for the you know, last decade or so and say, all right, what's let's, let me set you up for success. Totally, man. I, I look. I was right there with you too. You know, I was kind of a uh, low carb advocate for a long time, and I still think there's a time and place. We've done some ketogenic studies. I think you had my colleague Minaj Siddiqui on it fairly recently. So, but there's a time and place for different things, and that's even within individuals. Let's just take a look at watermelon, for example. You know, if you are someone, let's look at within the individual time and place. If you're someone that's very concerned about glycemic control, there are things you can do to mitigate that. You know, you can have some protein or fiber. You know, that's going to slow the, the the glycemic load even more, lower the glycemic load even even more. With that, you can go for a, a ten minute walk. You know, five, 10 minute walk after you, after you have your watermelon, you could, you could have a little berberine or cinnamon or there's a lot of things you could do that if you were really that concerned about it, that you could do to mitigate that side. Now, I would argue that for most people that they wouldn't be not to be too concerned about that. If this is in the midst of a, 
you know, generally healthy lifestyle, you maybe get out and go for a little walk after you have it. I mean, during the summer, it's a great thing. Now, let's think about that, that not every, with individual stuff, you probably wouldn't want to have watermelon, you know, in the middle of a snowy day and that kind of stuff. So there's like a seasonal, you know, maybe some people would. My wife would, she's from Colombia, South America. So she, she would eat watermelon every day, every, every, the weather's always the same. She would have watermelon every day if she could, but it's like, you know, you think about that kind of stuff too. There's seasonal variability that a lot of, again, you talked about it before, about was it like intuition or yeah. common sense. Yeah. That's born over the, the the course a lot of times of thousands of years of human history. Absolutely. So yeah, I'm I'm with you. And I think I think getting really caught up in dietary dogma can be an issue. And look, if it really works for somebody, great. But I th- I've seen many times, whether it's plant-based or a keto or low fat back, you know, back, some people still, but back in the day, you know, people will do it and it almost becomes like, you know, a, a dogma for them and they may be suffering and not realize it because they, they, they just, they get into an eco chamber, especially now with social media, where it's like, you, know, you go to a whole bunch of vegan influencer pages or a whole bunch of carnivore influencer pages. And like, all you hear is good things about it, but it may not be good for you. So you need to constantly reevaluate in your own life with with these types of things and recognize the nuances. I mean, you talked about soy and the paper that we did. We looked at five common perceived risks and co- five common perceived benefits. Now for me, I don't really eat soy because I'm not one that I feel like benefits that much from it. But if I'm a perimenopausal woman and we're talking about fermented soy, organic tempeh and something, that's probably going to be a really good food for her, you know, but it's, it's, everything's different. This is what you deal with as a clinician, but I think this is where we need as researchers need to, to, to do studies that actually can point people in those directions as opposed to those one size fits all stuff that just doesn't work. Absolutely. You know, I, I always say, Chris, I said, look, the diet that gets you well, doesn't always keep you well. Definitely. Right. I never heard that before. That's absolutely true. Right. You go, to, you go from, by the way, that was my experience 25 years ago, standardized, yeah. you know, Western American diet, fries, burgers, shakes, soda, juices, bacon, uh, everything. Then I was like, well, I need to change. I went to vegan raw food because that was what was happening at the time <laughs> and I was a young guy I was like well, I, I want to join a tribe actually so diets are very tribal um, and people yeah. want to connect with other people so I was like that's mm-hmm. my tribe you yeah. know and I'm so here you know I take out my you know my Birkenstocks sandals and I'm ready to go man I, I'm, yeah. I'm all in this is like I want to be a natural doctor and right. then, so I did that. And then, of course, I felt better, lost some weight. Felt, and then it was like I plateaued and I kind of started declining. My lost too much weight. My head, you know, my head was too big for my body. My girlfriend then, my who's my wife now, she was like, Gio, listen, we need to go to a steakhouse and you need a medium rare steak, like porterhouse, <laughs> like right now. I was like, no, yeah. no. You know, yeah. you look yeah. at a guy eating a burger. Oh, my God, that's horrible. Of course, everybody goes through yeah. this process sure and but the bottom line is that it got me better but it didn't keep me well and then you have to make some adjustments with that and, and so forth so and then and then and then i go to like my mother's house to have a typical cuban meal i'm like no that's not brown rice i can't and she's like get the f out of my house yeah. and you're gonna come so right so the whole yeah. enjoyment of food and engagement with other people through food and all the Sure. This went down the drain. So I was one of those people. I was like, well, this is not really working. And then you make adjustments yeah. accordingly. It's helped me become a better integrative practitioner. Chris, final words. And how can people get in touch with you if, if, they, if they'd like to get in touch with you? Yeah, well, I guess the final words is that, you know, I hope this has opened up some eyes to how the research process works in our in our field in particular, ways to, you know, better critically read studies. And, you know, the best way to get a hold of me is, is I don't really have a active social media 
my presence, to be honest with you. But you can email me. You can check, you know, search my name, and there's a university website that goes to. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put in a link uh, in the show notes. I mean, I, you know, it's a company that wants to uh, do a study with you or some uh, funding uh, opportunity that may go about to um, help fund some studies and things like that would be uh, helpful, I would think. So we'll 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 attach that. Hey, man, thanks so much. I really appreciate your expertise. I appreciate the work you do in our field. There's not too many people like you, like I said before. And I appreciate you coming on as a, again, as a dad and one who is very busy, you know, in his labs and writing these papers. So I appreciate it so much, man. Thank you so much. I plan to keep it a great work. I enjoy what you do and uh, look forward to coming back again sometime. Thanks so much. All right. Till next time. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.